0: Before we would open the Word of God, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this afternoon hour, we want to turn to Thee now and ask for a special presence of Thy Holy Spirit now as we would look into Thy Word together, that we would see not just words on a page, but through those words that we would see the eternal and the living God. Be with us now as we would meditate upon Thy Word and Grant us a rich blessing from thy storehouse above. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of the Lord is open this afternoon to the eleventh chapter of Luke's Gospel. So Luke chapter eleven. The chapter's fairly lengthy. I'd like to read a selection of verses from the beginning of the chapter, starting with the first verse. <clears throat> and it came to pass that, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend? And shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? I've read until the end of the 13th verse. We have before us a section of scripture that I'm sure is familiar to most of us here. It focuses on something that I feel that I'm really just beginning to learn about and if anything is probably one of I would say the greatest weaknesses perhaps of the modern Christian and maybe even our denomination and that's simply the subject of prayer when we think of the words of Christ when he cleansed the temple. We heard that referred to in this morning's sermon. Jesus said when he cleansed the temple, my house was to be called by all nations a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. I sometimes reflect on really... How little praying we do versus other things even when we're together it's not something we seem to spend all that much time in you could perhaps call our church a house of fellowship or a house of preaching or even a house of singing but can we honestly call it a house of prayer If the prayer gets longer than a few minutes, people get restless. And then, of course, if you're like me, I think also to my own life and my own prayer life and think, well, how, how long do I spend in prayer myself away from other people? Is prayer something that's a rushed affair before meals because we've been taught that that's the right thing to do? Is it something tacked on to the very end of our day when we're already fighting with sleepiness? Or is it something that's central to our Christian walk and to our Christian life? I confess that too often my prayers are hurried confined, perhaps, to prayers about my family and about my circumstance and maybe some vague prayers about other people and certain people that I know are struggling with sickness. But when we pray, what is is the purpose of prayer? Prayer is not really for God's benefit. He already knows our circumstances he knows the solution to those circumstances we pray out of need in time we are creatures of time we have a beginning we have an end in between we live our lives and as crises come up and as difficulties arise we feel the need to go to to go to God in prayer realizing our own limited resources and abilities especially when it comes to other people But God's not confined by time. He knows the outcome of all of our crises that we face. Prayer is for our benefit, not for his. And yet somehow in our minds we've maybe kind of twisted it around. And we think of prayer as something we're doing for God. that he needs me to somehow take an intercessory position in order to get things done. God will accomplish his work. Mordecai told his niece, Esther, that if you don't speak, the Lord will raise up another deliverer to accomplish his will. But who knows if you've been brought to this time for such a for such a, a a time as this, <clears throat> I would have loved to have heard Christ's prayers. But save for the one for his disciples, I don't know that they're actually recorded. This template that we've read, that even my children can recite, this was not for Christ, this prayer. He was teaching his disciples to pray. It's glaringly obvious that it wasn't for him because it says, And forgive us our sins. Christ had nothing that he needed to be forgiven, he was perfect. That was for us. This template is for us. I would have liked to have heard him pray. I don't know what it would have been like, but he spent many, many hours in prayer. When you consider how packed his schedule was, how busy his, his brief period of ministry was, I, it would put any of us to shame. Long hours followed by nights of prayer or awaking before everyone else and heading off to commune with his father. I wonder what that prayer must have been like. We could speculate about that, but that's not maybe necessarily profitable for this time that we have. So instead, we have to see what he said to us. The great revelation that Christ brought to man, to mankind, was simply this that God is our Father. That was a fact that was hidden from eternity past. And perhaps it had not been since the first Adam had spent time with his Father in the cool of the evening that this truth that God is our Father was once again brought to light. No other, no other religion claims this. But this was something unique. Christ came as the son of his father. And even in the genealogies, it says of him, when it gets to Joseph's genealogy, and he was supposed to be the son of Jacob, as, as he was supposed to be, the son of Jacob, and then it goes through Jacob's genealogy. But we know that really his father was the heavenly father. And the revelation that we can speak to him as a father, that was shocking, especially when you consider everything that Israel had learned in the desert when God came down on Mount Sinai and the mountains just quaked, and there was fire and there was smoke and the voice of a trumpet to the point where the people that were there said, "We cannot hear it anymore. Moses, you go and hear what God has to say, and you come down and tell us, and we'll do it. Such a holy God. We were talking again on, on Wednesday night, uh, from the booklet, a, "A City set on a hill," and the dedication of the Temple of Solomon. It says that the house of God was filled with the glory of God in, in the form of a cloud, and it was, it was so thick, they had to go out of the temple. Those priests that were serving in the temple, they had to leave. They had to stand outside while the glory of God filled the temple. That must have been an awesome sight, this, this bright cloud of God shining forth from between the two cherubim above the mercy seat, A picture in the future of what was going to happen, how God Himself would come down in mercy. The statements are short, the sentences are short that Christ gives us, but each one, a sermon could be devoted to them if if we so choose. Hallowed be thy name. What does that mean? Does that simply mean not using God's name lightly? I don't think so. You see, in in Scripture, name was equated with identity, who you were. If I wanted to know who you were, there was something else attached to your name. You were so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, or the daughter of so-and-so, and... The thinking there was that if you knew the Father, then you knew the Son. There was a link. Lineage was important. Characteristics of families was important. And that was part of your identity. That was part of what fed into what, who you were. So if God's name is hallowed, and we are part of His family because we refer to Him as Father... How ought we to be? If the name of your Father is holy, how should you be? How should I be? Do we, do we demonstrate, as, as the Zion's as harp hymn says, do we demonstrate our, our heavenly birth? You know, I have a number of kids, as you all are aware of. Some of them look more like me than others. And I've heard it before of one or the other, oh, so-and-so looks just like you. Can people say that about us? They say, "I've, I've seen the way you are, and you look to me just like Jesus must have looked. Not in terms of physical appearance, but in terms of who he was and what he did, the way he treated people, the way he lived, the way he spent time in prayer. thy kingdom come is that something we really desire or would we prefer that God's kingdom hold off just a little bit longer because we've got plans and we've got things we need to accomplish and there's there's some things that I still would like to do or experience are we pilgrims here if some calamity overtook us and we were to suddenly lose everything Would we be able to say with Job, blessed be the name of the Lord? Or would we weep and pine for what we have lost like those merchants who beheld the burning of the city that is spiritually called Babylon and lamented the loss, the loss to their profits, the loss to their revenue? Thy will be done as in heaven, So in earth. That should cause all of us to pause when we really think about what that means. It's easy to say it quickly, from memory even, but to realize what it must mean for me. Thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. In heaven, when God's will is expressed, things immediately happen. The beasts that surround the throne of of whose uh, appearance we can't even rightly speak, they don't say, well, just a moment, God, let me think about it. There's There's no struggling of their will against God's will. The response is immediate. It's interesting to see how God... The presence of God is often uh, given a description of things that imply speed and action. We read in Ezekiel's vision of wheels within wheels spinning. We read about cherubim flying around the temple. (coughs) We read about the spirit of God going out into all the earth. Energy, speed. Even when we were to look at, at, at physical... The physical world that surrounds us and beyond this world, we look out into space, the incredible distances and the incredible speed at which things travel boggles the mind. Things happen immediately when God decrees. In His kingdom, everything gives glory to Him, as it says in the Psalms. Yet we're often slow, we're often slow to move. Too often we say with Peter, not so, Lord. Or maybe not yet, Lord. And really we have no right calling him Lord if we're not willing to do what he says and what he commands us to do. It becomes a contradiction in terms. So when God speaks, our response should be to move Immediately. But too often we weigh things out and we we consider uh, uh, extraneous factors and these things that are uh, maybe contingent on this decision and and so often we're paralyzed as a result. But really when we consider it, when we think that this life will end, and as I get older you realize that there's, There's really not all that much time in front of me. Even if I live to a ripe old age. What does it matter? What have I got to lose by leaving things here? Not much. When we consider everything that the Word of God tells us about eternity, and as we get to know God and understand Him better and better and learn to love Him more and more, The things that are here, they have less of a hold on me. There were things that I thought when I was younger I'd like to do or like to see. And and I get a little bit older now and I think I can die without doing any of those things or seeing any of those things. It's all going to pale in comparison to the experience of opening our eyes in glory one day. What does it matter? Give us day by day our daily bread. God is conscious of our needs. The God of the universe is concerned that we have enough food today. That in and of itself is mind-boggling when we consider the greatness of God and yet his his attention to detail down, down to the very little things in our life. But yet it's day by day. Sometimes when I think ahead and I... I, I, I try to think too far down the line, it's, it's, it's discouraging sometimes, it's almost paralyzing. And then you think, really, I'm worrying about a tomorrow that may or may not come. Day by day, walking day by day. Do people see that in us? Do they see a sense of, of a joy of living in the moment? Or does Monday come and our faces are as long as everyone else is at the office? When things get us down, it's not that they shouldn't get us down. We're human too. We, we, we feel things. But when they get us, when something gets us down, does thinking on our Heavenly Father and how he cares for us pick us up? It should. And people should notice. People should notice that we are walking to a different beat. That the things of this world, and you notice that the hymn that says, that, The things of earth shall grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I heard one man once turn that around a little bit and he said, In the light of God's glory and grace, things down here should look strangely grim. Not just dim. Do the people around us see us running after the same thing that everyone else runs after? Are we hunting for significance here? Are we looking for um, a bigger paycheck? A more comfortable lifestyle? An Instagram-worthy lifestyle? Something that we can show to other people and share? You know, there's been a rash of People dying untimely deaths because they wanted to share some kind of an exotic picture of themselves, and they put themselves in dangerous situations trying to snap a selfie and end up falling to their deaths in some pretty nice locations, but they're still dead. For them, that was it. Their effort to share something memorable with someone else to show how they were doing something exceptional, ended up with their deaths. I went to the Zion's Harpsing in in Clovis, California, a few years ago now, a number of years ago now, and uh, one of the hiking paths, I like to hike, I love nature, and we went to the top of this one waterfall called the Vernal Falls, and there's a triangular slab of rock that (coughs) juts out and the, the water runs right past that tip and drops a few hundred feet down and it's beautiful <coughs> there's a steel railing that goes around there to let you know not to get too close it was only a couple weeks after I was at that spot that three or four young early 20 year old students fell to their death because they went on the other side of the railing and they were trying to take a picture of themselves over this waterfall Why? Just so you can show someone this is where I was, this is what I did. I'm significant. Yes, you are significant, but not in the way you think. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. What that tells me His love for the world was so great, so great, it included everyone in it. But that sacrifice of his son, that applies one to one. One righteous man for one condemned man. And if it had only been one person who would have responded, he would have sent his son. because he was not willing that any should perish. You think of that love, the vastness of that love, that attention to detail, looking for the individual, that's real significance. That's significance that gives you real value. people look for significance, and there's different metrics of it. People put videos up on YouTube, and if the, the video goes viral, then you know, it. I don't know how many million hits, but yesterday's hit videos are forgotten tomorrow and there's another one coming out with more, more hits and, and, and more um, uh, fame attached to it. That's not really significance. Significance is, is only important in the eyes of the Father, the kind of significance we can have because of how he loved us. And how he sought us out. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Someone might say, well, forgiveness, isn't that a work? I'd say, yes. But you're telling me now that my forgiveness... vis-a-vis God to God now depends on my works well yes well if we know that salvation is not by works what do you do with this verse the answer is very simple I forgive you can argue with the theology of it if you like but it's here in black and white we do not receive forgiveness unless we forgive someone else That's weighty. Forgive everyone that is indebted to us. I'm reminded of another verse that says simply Owe no man anything but to love one another. Wow. Owe no man anything but to love one another. If the only thing Christians owed to the world was love, that would be amazing. The Christians would be a force to be reckoned with. No one would have anything on us. The only thing they could say is, you're a Christian. You should love me. And we'd say, yes. And I love you. But they wouldn't be able to accuse us of anything else. lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When we find ourselves in evil, deliver us from that evil. God doesn't lead us into temptation. He allows temptation to come upon us that we may be tested, that we may learn to lean on him. Satan tempts us seeking to make us fall. God allows that temptation to occur because he wants to prove us, to test us. And why is that testing necessary? Is that necessary for him? Is he the one who has something to gain out of that? No. It's to teach us that God really is the source of everything we need, as Christ knew and as he taught. In each each case, when he was tempted by Satan, it was to rely on himself, to rely on something else other than God and God's timing for something. And really, we can get into a lot of trouble when we don't have that perspective that Christ had. When we long for something that we're not being given by God. When we seek after something we shouldn't have, that he hasn't given us. That's when despair and and despondency kick in. Those, those unfulfilled expectations, perhaps, that, that drag us down when we compare ourselves with other people, even? Scripture tells us those that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. If God's given something good to someone else, rejoice for them. If he hasn't given it to you, you can even rejoice in that. Waiting on God and waiting on his timing is a difficult thing for us. But it's the key to great gain. It says godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is knowing that you are exactly where God wants you to be right now. Then it doesn't matter what you have or what you don't have. You're exactly where God wants you to be. And we're taught to ask often. My children know this one as well. They know by requesting a lot. It's hard to ignore. And sometimes when I think about that, I also then think, how how little I ask my Heavenly Father. I try to do things on my own. And then when things really don't work out, and I have no more options, then I look to Him in prayer. That's really backwards. I could learn from my kids in that area. Asking God and asking often is something that he looks forward to. He delights in. he tells us to do it. The example that's given is someone who has some visitors come in the middle of the night and if you think about this in context of the time you you see what the problem really is. He says, I don't don't have any bread to give him and I can't go to those that... That, that bake it normally. They they aren't selling it. And even if I was to try to bake bread myself, there's no rushing the baking of bread. It has to have the proper time to raise. It has to have the proper time to uh, sit after it's been punched down, and then it still has to be baked. That can be hours. And so in the, oppor- in, in the, in the, uh, in the moment, the man went and asked his neighbor, and he didn't ask him once or twice. He asked often, and, and we can get discouraged or disheartened sometimes when it seems like our prayers are not being answered. But then again, we have to go back to that fact that I mentioned earlier. Who receives the benefit of prayer? It's not God. It's for us. Do we really believe that God will hear our prayers? And do we believe also that if he hasn't answered that prayer in a way that we can see that he wants us to keep asking. I'm the first to admit that I can get discouraged sometimes when my prayers don't seem to be answered. But I need to be persistent also in prayer. God will give good things. And to conclude, I want to just touch on the 13th verse and it's something that I'm still not wrestling with, really, but, but trying to internalize and understand exactly what that means. It says, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Believers, when was the last time that you felt filled with the Spirit of God? What does it mean to live in the Spirit? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? This is not a one-time filling. This is not simply, simply something that happened once on your baptism day when you were prayed over by the elders of the church. There's much more to this. We're not uh, dispensationalists. We don't believe that, um, you know, there was just simply these, these categories in time where God was dealing in different ways, and now, you know, the early church, uh, that the things that happened then were just for that time, and we've moved past them. I believe that we understand Scripture to mean that those things that God accomplished in the first church can also happen here, that God's arm is not shortened, but why doesn't it there was 120 in the upper room 120 on a good day here in this church when everyone's here if we were to have all the kids and everyone we would have about that many people 120 to shake the world do we want to be filled? If we want to be filled, do we need to be made empty? God, is a good father, will give it to us. It's not enough to sit back in a pew and say, that happened to me once. The spirit-filled life of a Christian is to be the normal thing not a one-time thing. May we all seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit, knowing that we have a Father that is waiting for us to ask Him for that. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. Amen. Would a brother please select a hymn. In conclusion, I heard a short story about a man who was a godly man in England some 500 odd years ago. His name was John Knox. He was perhaps the greatest preacher of the gospel that Scotland ever produced. And at that time, the Queen of Scotland was... Mary, Queen of Scots, also called Bloody Mary. John Knox often preached in opposition to her. And it was told her one day that John Knox is praying. And her response to that was, I would rather an army was marching on Scotland. Than to hear that man is praying. What has made prayer weak for us? If prayer is indeed such a mighty weapon, so effective, what has made it weak for us? It's easy to maybe look at others or look at the church and treat it as some kind of an abstract whole, and say, well, that's the problem. But what has made it ineffective for me? That's the more vexing problem for me. Why are my prayers not more effective? It says, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Perhaps that's part of the problem. Perhaps I don't treat God's holiness and my righteousness seriously enough. I make too many compromises, too many excuses for myself. I'm doing other things, perhaps. I'm certainly not uninvolved. But what does that matter? What does that matter if my prayers are ineffective? I don't have the answer, but I would suspect if you're like me, you probably don't spend nearly enough time in prayer. Prayer is one of those things that most people don't see. I know of great prayers. I know of those that when they were on their convalescent beds of old age and someone came to give them a bath it was said of that old sister her knees are like leather do our knees get sore after a few minutes of prayer because they simply haven't been used to it at home I don't know but it's sobering when we consider how much Christ prayed, how much the early church prayed, how much the church in persecution prays. And then we wonder why the benches aren't full, why we're not full of the Spirit of God in the way that other believers have been at other places and at other times, in spite of perhaps knowing more about the Bible than any other generation before us. The text is in our heads. But what about our hearts, brothers and sisters? May the Lord grant that we would all remember these these things during the week and we would perhaps make a more concerted effort to seek God in prayer. When I've done that, the fruit of it has been sweet. I admit that. But I forget and go back into old habits and old patterns. May we be once again characterized as a praying church. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to the word. Amen.